Hi, this is Karen Harvey, and you're listening to Fashion Tech Forum in the studio. I've realized, particularly this year, how conditioned I've been over 20 years to keep race out of work, keep race out of conversations in the workplace. And I've also realized I have felt really called to action this year. And I have felt that in many ways, all of the experiences that I've had have led to this moment. And what would I do in this moment? I'm so pleased to be able to share this conversation with the very inspiring Walter Fry. We invited Walter on the show to discuss his ever-evolving and expanding role as the VP of Global Brand Engagement and Design with American Express. And he is also one of the leaders of Small Business Saturday, a program that we've long admired and found particularly relevant to discuss in this extremely difficult moment for small businesses in our country. This said, our conversation turned out to be perhaps more personal, more memorable, and more important for this moment in time than I could have ever imagined. Walter's experience and career, like many of ours, was shaped in no small part by his upbringing. He was raised by two loving, hardworking parents, themselves raised in the segregated South, who fiercely supported their bright and rightly ambitious son. From the values he learned from his parents early on, including those grounded in the importance of education, work, and family, to the impact all of this had on him and his career as an executive, mentor, and leader of teams, Walter shares many moving stories here that really made me appreciate who he is and how he has approached his life. Today at American Express, Walter is more than a marketing and business and team leader. He is a driving force and an inspiration, a cultural connector who leads from a place of empathy at all times, something that is desperately needed amongst business leaders today, and I truly respect him for that. I was perhaps most struck by the timing of our conversation. It felt like Walter is at a turning point in his own life, a moment where his past, present, and future are all coming together to give him this opportunity to do more and to truly step into his place as a leader. I feel like he's absolutely seizing that moment and I know that this is just the beginning for him. I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Walter and thanks as always for joining us in the studio. Well, Walter, I cannot thank you enough. I was thinking about you this morning and thinking about the first time I met you, which I'm pretty sure we had an amazing drinks and dinner out with Ciara and your team, right? Yes, I was thinking about that today too. We were with Moj from BeautyCon and we had the most delicious meal at Indochine. We did, and we had some very good wine, as I remember. I actually don't drink wine, but I'm sure I enjoyed a few cocktails. We had fun, no matter what. Absolutely, absolutely. But I remember thinking that night, good for American Express. Brandy, Walter, like these people are amazing. And genuinely, I remember in our evening of fun expressing to you 
you know, American Express has genuinely a, been a very important, actually, partner to me. When I launched my first company, which I did quite late in my career, right? So I launched Karen Harvey Consulting, the first of our three companies, 20, almost one years ago. And the only credit card I applied for was American Express. And I fully expected to be turned down, actually, for a business card. And they approved me for a platinum card right away. And I remember thinking, that is so incredible. I don't really have a company yet. I, I'm incorporated. I have a good reputation. I have a handful of clients. It's a recession. So it was 2001 in May. So we were just coming off like a moderate sort of recession. And, and it was before 9-11. And through the 20-something years, I have to say, American Express has been along for the ride the whole time. I know it's probably funny. I don't know how many times you hear this from people, but American Express is, you know, probably the pretty silent partner to a lot of people with small businesses, but also not just retail, right? Or not just restaurants or whatever the other kinds of consumer-facing businesses you serve, but also those like mine that are in the service sector. So thank you for that. Well, I remember that story well, and I have to tell you, you know, I've been at American Express now for 13 years, and nobody is more surprised than me how big that number is, but it really has flown by. And one of the things that has been so exciting about working at American Express is I do hear stories like that all the time, whether it is from very well-known jewelry designers um, who have started their business and continue to fuel their business on American Express, or some of the biggest artists in the world um, whose names that everybody knows tell me stories from when they used to use the platinum car to upgrade to business class and bring a companion with them. Um, and even this year, there are two new agencies that we started to work with, and both founders talked to us in our first meetings about the story of how they built their business on American Express. And I really do think it's unique um, as compared to other financial services companies or other credit card companies. And I've been thinking a lot, like, what is the secret sauce of that? And is there some kind of heritage that I don't know about? Where did this kind of equal treatment for small companies come about when you know that really probably the big business for American Express has to rest with all the credit cards that a big company would be giving to their employees. Like, is there a legacy or a history or a foundation to this small business relationship that you ended up, of course, owning? But I'd love to know if there's something behind that. What I definitely think is unique is the relationship that our customers have with the brand, whether it's a consumer relationship, a B2B relationship, or a merchant relationship. And what is unique about our business model is that American Express owns both the relationship with the merchant and with the end consumer. 
And so that has positioned us to better serve our B2B clients over the years. And it's why decades ago, the business was launched around Open. And today, the Open sub-brand no longer exists, but that business is a huge part of our overall ecosystem. And I work very closely with the team that develops products and services for our small and medium-sized business customers as we promote programs like Shop Small and Small Business Saturday, which are integral in terms of helping drive consumers to those businesses every year. I definitely can't take credit for what we've established in terms of that sense of community. When I'm out in the streets and when I'm talking to people or meeting new people, like when I met you a few years ago, people often tell me when their member since date was. And that's just so incredible, right? That people have such a relationship with our brand and with our products that they remember when their relationship started. And I think that is extremely wonderful and it really has engendered great loyalty for the brand over the years. And then you understand when I met you and Brandy, I was like, and these aren't bankers. They're not even marketing bankers. They're like, great. So that's pretty incredible. It's a lot you've done in 13 years. American Express is a unique brand in our category. And my career started in financial services, and I decided very early that I wanted to get out of it. And now look, I've been at a financial services company (laughs) for over 13 years. And it's because I have never felt like American Express is a financial services company. Right. I was attracted to the company because I saw it as a lifestyle brand. I saw it as an aspirational global brand that I had a lot of respect for. And my whole career, and I've worked in three different business units at the company, and I've worked under two different CMOs since I joined the brand team, my whole career has been in roles mostly where I've been able to help move that brand forward and really lean into the the lifestyle brand that was established decades ago, but that we've really continued to engender and grow uh, since I've joined. You know, we've been in also a couple of group meetings together, and it really does feel like the relationships are very good and very strong there. And it's impressive. And I have lots of questions about the things you've been up to in your career. But before doing that, we've never really discussed your personal background, you know, what part of the country are you from, if you're from here? And tell us a little bit about about your growing up. Sure. So I'm from South Orange, New Jersey, which is, I call it a suburb of New York City. And I was raised by two hardworking parents who came from very humble beginnings. Both of my parents were born and raised in the segregated South. And they moved to the Northeast in their formative years where they graduated from college and went on to pursue advanced degrees. So when I think Mm. about my upbringing, there are a lot of ways in which it felt very storybook. I remember when we would watch The Cosby Show, we could really see ourselves in that family. Ah. And so there was definitely a, a huge value placed on the importance of education. It was always understood and never a question that me and my sisters would go to college. And I always had great ambition. And if you asked me when I was a kid, what did I want to be when I grew up? I would say I I wanted to be an accountant. And just imagine a (laughs) seven-year-old kid telling you that they wanted to be an accountant. 
And then funny enough, a few years later, I think I started to change my answer because I'd heard about this profession of tax attorney. And I thought that it sounded a little bit evolved <laughs> compared to what my dad's profession was because I'd actually said that I wanted to be an accountant because my dad was an accountant. Wow. And I should mention also that I was named after my father. I'm actually Walter Fry the Fifth. And I almost never tell anybody that because I think it sounds so pretentious. But I talk about it here because I do think that it has had an impact on who I've become today. I've always felt a huge responsibility having that name, you know, having a father who was the, the eldest. fifth. I mean, that's like, that's like a lot. It's a lot. And it's been mostly subconscious, but I've always felt that I had to be something and really live up to that name. So... We get that the fourth was your dad. Tell me about the third and the second. I grew up with my father and with my grandfather being alive. And so I knew my grandfather. He probably passed away when I was seven or eight. And I know that he and my grandmother, who lived for decades longer, raised five children. Wow. And um, that it was hard. Yes. When I was in grad school... I asked my father to write a letter that I could read to my classmates during Black History Month because I was in this very interesting moment in school when I realized that people didn't see me as having the Black experience that they attribute to the Black experience. Yes. It was such a conflict for me because I knew that I was raised by two parents who went to segregated schools and it doesn't get... Uh. You don't have a more Black experience than going to a separate and unequal school for most of your life. Mm. And you can imagine that doesn't go away as you raise your children and want to protect them in the world. And so I asked my dad to write a letter and I read it to my classmates and he talked about being a kid who walked miles to school and who lived in fear of the KKK. Uh, what, what, what state did he, uh, they live in? In North Carolina. And at this point, you know, I was a young adult. I was in my mid-20s, and it was the first time I'd ever realized that things that I'd read about in history classes and that I'd seen images of were my parents' actual reality. And so when you ask about, you know, my lineage, it is definitely the American story for Black Americans. Sadly, I don't know that much about my great-grandfather or my great-great-grandfather and that's part of what a lot of black families face, right? A lot of those stories get lost. Yes. Um, certainly were the descendant of slaves and likely one of those Walter Fry's was born into slavery. But I, I have to go yes. back and check out the family history of what we do know before I go all the way there. To know you and to realize without knowing it, and you have to correct me if this is wrong, but somehow your parents seem to have raised you without anger or resentment, because I don't sense that from you. That's absolutely right. I don't know that my parents knew how to do that or that it was fully intentional. My parents wanted the best education for their children. And they knew that, unfortunately, to provide the best education, it meant sending us to predominantly white schools. And so to know South Orange, New Jersey, is to know that it is a textbook example of a very diverse town mm. where, in many cases, the black and white communities live on different sides of the town. And interestingly, my parents moved when I was eight from one side of the town to the other side of the town. So race wow. has been in my life in terms of the construct 
since the beginning, but my relationship in terms of how I've understood it, of course, has evolved over time. I'm just struck by how incredibly relevant this conversation is, of course, for the moment, and how you must be feeling right now, which I I don't want to make any assumptions. I want to ask you, but also... Do you think your sisters, how many sisters, first of all? So I have two sisters. One is significantly older, and then I have a younger sister who's three years younger. So do you think they had similar experiences to you, and and what do they do? So that's a great question because my sister's 11 years older, but she went to the same high school that I went to and that my younger sister went to. And if Mm. you were to look at my high school yearbook and my older sister's high school yearbooks, it wouldn't even look like the same school. My high school had probably doubled or tripled in its black population between the 11 years that she graduated and when I started. And the reason for that wasn't so much that the town makeup had changed, but that a higher percentage of white families were sending their children to private schools. And I think that trend has continued to grow over the years since I graduated quite some time ago. So you were public school educated. I was public school educated. I had a great education. I was just recalling a story to some friends a few weeks ago about my seventh grade math teacher. And I actually quite enjoyed her class when I was in the seventh grade. But at the end of the year, the math teacher recommended that I be placed in a lower math class. Math classes were all tiered, and she was moving me from the top to the middle tier. My parents, of course, did not find that to be remotely acceptable. I was very strong in math. And my parents went into the school, and they met with the principal, and they had the decision reversed. And I remember pleading with my parents to not make a big deal, to not embarrass me by confronting the teacher And what is really profound about this story is that about 10 years later, that teacher was fired and sued for a history of racial discrimination in her decisions around where to place minority students. I would have never known that that could have been such a critical moment in my life had this not been discovered and had she not eventually, you know, faced the music. And I tell the story only because I think it really reflects the subconscious racism that has deep and tremendous long-lasting impacts on people at every age. And when I look back at not just the career that I've had, but the educational experiences that I've had, I'm not sure that I would have had them if my parents hadn't gone into the school and reversed that decision, which was unfounded. That that is so incredible in so many ways, but also that is what my parents would have done, right? But perhaps, and I don't know, because again, white people like me really don't, from experience, know these things, right? But I would imagine that there would have been less confident parents, black parents, that might not have felt the confidence to go into that school and demand justice for their child. I mean, that's just an incredible example for you. It's probably one of many. It's exactly right. And it's definitely where I got my 
mojo from in terms of always standing up for myself and always standing up for others because I agree with you um, and so many parents are busy yes and so many parents don't feel that they are positioned to challenge authority exactly and I as a student certainly would have never flagged this as a concern or issue to my parents. So yes is the answer to everything that you just said. And did your mom work as well? Yeah, so I had two working parents and my grandmother, who is still alive, she's 92 years old now, lived with us my entire life. So Mm. I've never had a babysitter once and uh, it's been really wonderful to have had two role models who are working parents because my mom worked in corporate America and my father was an entrepreneur. And so I also had two different role models to consider around where my life might go and which was more interesting to me. And what was really profound and what I really remember is I was watching and comparing the experiences that they were having from a career perspective was that we would travel with my father based on where he would go to different conferences and we would often have vacations based on where the conferences were being held. And my dad would have to work on nights and weekends. And and of course, my father prioritized being at our games and being at our shows and being at dinner whenever he could be at dinner But I just really never forgot that my mom could check out and she could take vacation and be present with us in ways that my father couldn't because he would always tell us, like, I have to keep this roof over your head and I have to pay for all of these nice things that you want. So for me, I just really gravitated towards the idea of a corporate career and I just instinctively knew that I could carve a path where I would be very successful, but also make time and make room for the other things that I wanted to do in my life in terms of family. But isn't it interesting because here you are, you've been working with entrepreneurs for all these years, and it's definitely not lost on you, I'm sure, what those of us who do have our own businesses, how we think about things, how we don't have those cushions to rely on, whether it's large structures, you know, infrastructure, large numbers of people to back us up when we do want to check out. And it's just a certain kind of character that whether you're an accountant or a baker, it's still the same. Exactly. And it's one of the reasons I have so much empathy for business owners today. You know, I'm certain that when I was growing up, if my dad had to lose business for six months or nine months, it would have had devastating effects on our family. And so few business owners are positioned to weather the storm that we're in the middle of. And so I'm very grateful that I had that upbringing because it has given me tremendous empathy to do the job that I do. And of course, if somebody came to me and and we had a great business idea that we wanted to bring to life, I'm sure that I would be a great entrepreneur. But I've really brought the skills and traits that make successful entrepreneurs into my career at American Express, right? Somebody the other day made a comment to me that, you know, I might be clocking off at six o'clock or logging off at six (laughs) o'clock. And I couldn't believe it. I said, I don't remember the last time that my work didn't take me to my bed. (laughs) And of course, now I'm in an apartment where I can see my bed, you know, all day. But 
one of the first things I do every morning is I check my work email, I check my Slack channel, yes. and it's one of the last things yes. I do before I go to bed. And so I just don't have any correlation between work ethic and whether you're in a corporate environment or whether you're in a small business or entrepreneurial environment, the stakes are just different, right? Because it's yes. not my yes. name on the wall. I don't have to decide whether to pay myself to take a vacation. But I think that's also another reason American Express is what it is. Because the culture of... Not corporate, but corporate, right? So it is that idea of, of course you wake up in the morning and check your email. They're giving you great projects, big responsibility. I don't get a sense around there, not that I've been in there that often, but people don't, you don't get that I'm skating along no. kind of vibe. It, it doesn't feel like that. So that's cool. But you went to Yale first, then Harvard, or was it the other that's way around? Right. Yale for undergrad and Harvard Business School. So was Yale like your first pick? Like what made <laughs> you tell me about that? So it's probably going to surprise you that I don't have a great story about how I ended up at Yale. Even though I was very ambitious, as I described earlier, I didn't have a vision for what my college experience was going to be like other <laughs> right. than that I would be having a college experience. And in fact, again, I remember thinking I might go to school where my dad went to school. My dad went to an all-black undergrad, Morgan State University, and then he went to UPenn for business school. Wow. During junior year when the brochures started to arrive in the mail, something clicked with Yale. And huh. one of the things I remember is that it was the perfect distance from home. Two-hour drive or train ride, and I knew that I wanted home to be accessible, but I didn't want mm -hmm. it to be so accessible that my parents might be in the neighborhood and swing by. And so they <laughs> took me to check it out. And the crazy thing is I don't even think I fell in love with it at first sight. So I still put together a list of eight to 10 schools with my reach schools and my safety schools. And I chose Yale instinctively as my early decision choice. And when I got in, the decision was done. And the truth of the matter and the real secret sauce, I think, of schools like it is that it is the perfect microcosm of society. Really what they're building is a truly diverse set of students who come from every walk of life, who've had every different type of experience from every socioeconomic background. And that is really what makes the experience so special. Did you... Um, did you go to work right after Yale and then go to Harvard? Like, how did that go? I did. Go? So I didn't say this earlier, but I got my first job when I was 16. And my parents insisted the year that I could get my working papers, that I get my working papers. And they made it pretty easy. My dad found out about this program where um, golf courses would hire underrepresented minorities to come work wow. at different country clubs. And so I got my first job at Baltus Roll Golf Club, which a lot of golfers would know. It's one of the top golf courses in the world, and it's in a, a very exclusive country club in Springfield, New Jersey. And what I remember about it was that it really created this warped view of what success looked like. I remember the idea of every car in the lot being an expensive Mercedes or BMW and this real focus on who was in and who was out and the mm. club only had two black members and people all the time thought that I was the son of one of the members because how else would I have gotten in? Oh my God. 
And the two things I remember most about the experience was this notion of how it was defining success, but also this notion of, like, I didn't like the job that much. And I remember saying yeah. to my parents, well, I don't really like this job. And they said, you're not supposed to like your job. It's, that's why they call it work. And so I went back for three summers because I did recognize that it was a good job to have as a 16-year-old, as a 17-year-old. I tell that story because when I graduated from college, I was in an internship program through Inroads, which helps mm-hmm. underrepresented minorities get into corporate America. And Inroads yep. brought me to a Prudential Insurance Company. After three summers working in different parts of the organization where I was super bored and didn't really like what I was doing, I joined the company full time because I still had this notion that you're not supposed to like the job that you have. You're supposed to just get a good job. And I was at Prudential full time for almost three years. And Mm. the biggest lesson for me was my parents are wrong. They're wrong. I I can't (laughs) do this. I have to figure out what I love and how to build and design a career where I could do what I love. And I knew that whatever success meant, I wouldn't be successful if I didn't find that path. For me, going to business school was about taking time away from the corporate world to figure out what I wanted my career to be and to cement a transition into whatever that career might look like. And so on the way to business school, I worked at United Talent Agency in the mailroom for a summer. You worked at UTA? I don't think I knew that. You might not have known that. It might not be on my LinkedIn. I'm very proud of it, though, because it was extremely informative in terms of my career because you don't get more in the weeds and you don't get a better close-up view of what it's like to work in the entertainment industry than to push the mail cart around and hand the variety and Hollywood reporters to all of the agents and sort the mail and answer the phones. And what I learned that summer is I thought going into that summer that I wanted to be in a, a perfectly creative environment. And I thought that I wanted to be a TV programming executive because I loved mm. entertainment and I loved TV. And mm. I realized for being there that summer that I really missed the business acumen and the business side of being around business-minded people from Prudential. And so mm-hmm. I really started to pursue where can I find the mix of the business and the creative. And that's how I landed on marketing. And that took me to Harvard Business School, where I had an amazing experience. Well, what's so interesting about Harvard, I went to Harvard way, I went to the OPM program when I was launching Fashion Tech Forum. So different experience, but similar, but three years three weeks in residence a year over the course of three years, but living groups and all the different things. But what I noticed about Harvard and what I noticed about all the MBAs from Harvard, there's one red thread that kind of goes through most of them until a certain point is they got probably a greater emphasis on the finance side of the MBA than on the marketing side. So I am curious about how you think about that, because in your day, probably most of the people were there to go to some version of Wall Street, maybe private equity or something at that time, right? That's absolutely right. One of the challenges of going to business school is there's a deep herd mentality. 
And when you get there, there's a tendency to measure yourself against your classmates and wanting to stack up and measure up. And it's interesting because everybody is going through a recruiting process at the same time. So even though you're bonding with your classmates and supporting each other through the process, you're also competing with them for jobs. Yep. And what I remember is even though I had decided that I wanted to go into marketing, I felt this pull towards management consulting because so many more people right. were doing it. And there was this notion that that was a smarter, safer bet. And so I was never drawn to finance because I had enough experience at Prudential to know that's that wasn't going to be where I would enjoy. Even if I could do it, I just wasn't going to enjoy it. And I was actually an economics major. So I definitely mm-hmm. could have pursued finance if I was chasing that dream or chasing that big check. But by then, it was really important to me to do work that I love. And after you know one or two meetings with management consultants and one or two interviews with marketers where I was trying to juggle both, I realized, again, for me to be successful, I have to lean into what I want to do. And it was yep. hard. It was very hard to go against the herd and be one of the few marketers. I mean, there are a lot of marketers, but from a relative percentage perspective, you're absolutely right. It's a small percentage. Well, it was more like Northwestern exactly. consumer packaged goods marketers, especially in those days than at Harvard. So just interesting. But you might have had less competition <laughs> pursuing the marketing track. Who what knows? attracted me to Harvard wasn't any of those things. It was actually the community experience. When I got to the Harvard campus, it's actually one of the larger business schools. There are 900 students in each class, as yes. you know. And when you're yes. there, you're in an entire campus to yourself. And most business schools, if you look at Columbia or NYU, right, they're just it's a, a, it's a building. Adjacent. Or, yeah, it's a one, building. One component of the campus. And Harvard Business School has its own complex that is... Um, beautiful and really envelops the students in a way that creates a special experience. And, you know, I didn't realize when I was there how much it affected and transformed me as a person. Mm. And there are two reasons I would say that I was transformed looking back. The first is the teaching method. And it sounds like you're familiar with the case study method. The Socratic method and the case study is amazing. It's truly amazing because you learn every single subject, every single lesson is in the life of an actual business decision maker. Yes. And so we didn't have lectures on accounting or finance or even leadership. We learned those topics through each other. Incredible. And what it did for me is it started to help me see real-life business problems through the perspective of 90 different students, which I didn't even know was happening when I was there, but was ingrained over the course of hundreds of cases that I studied with so many people from different backgrounds and different worldviews. It gives one so much empathy. You know, everybody loves to be a Monday morning quarterback on big decision making. But I think beyond that, when what case studies really do and what that methodology really does is forces you to be very zen about it. You really have to get into the mindset, the headset, the emotional space, the angst, the choices, because for entrepreneurs, we really don't have that. You know, for me, I was very lucky because I'm always working with CEOs of big companies or relatively big companies or big, small companies to really help them 
solve their problems and around a lot of things, brand, talent, et cetera. But I think I was so much better off for it and I wished I had done it so much earlier in my career to really understand, like, to be that person and to be in that and knowing that the road looking right or the road looking left will most likely end up with very different results. And I would just also add that the diversity of points of view, I don't think that there's any better method. It's so true that when we're trying to solve problems as protagonists in our career, we often think that we're the first person to ever face this problem. And I'm sure that's much more true for, for an entrepreneur than it is for somebody in a corporate environment. But that practice and that study helps you realize that these problems have all been had before. They've all been solved before. And you're right, you can take path A or path B and it's going to lead you to different outcomes. And then, of course, you know, my second reason, because I said there were two, is what you just said, which is the diverse set of people. The mission of Harvard Business School is to create leaders who will make a difference in the world. And it's never lost on you when you're there that statistically the people who you're sitting next to on your left and your right in 20 years are going to be running governments, running businesses. And there's something extremely empowering to know, to know that 20 years later, those people that you can call are going to be running companies is hugely uplifting and it creates a safety net that I also just didn't imagine going in. It is incredible. And so did you land at American Express as a result of of that? I did. So I actually started at American Express as an intern between my first and second years at Harvard Mm -hmm. Business School. And I joined the company full time uh, when I graduated. And I was in the consumer marketing division. So I started my career on the Starwood card portfolio, which of course no longer exists, rest in peace, but was one of our most popular cards and a really great foundational learning in terms of my first experience at American Express. And then after that first role, I became a chief of staff for one of our senior executives. That's always such a good experience. People don't realize It was such an amazing apprenticeship. When I was an intern, I noticed that a lot of the business leaders that we met with when they would talk about their careers, a lot of them had this chief of staff role. And I noticed that consistency and that commonality. And I said, hmm, I think that might be a role that leads to future success. I think I want to look into that more. And I'm so grateful for the experience that I had in that position because you become a member of a leadership team that is far beyond your years. And so you have a front seat and a seat at the table and a voice at the table to talk about some of the most important business problems that people at your level would otherwise never know about and never be exposed to. Mm. And you'll never believe that the next job after that was when I landed on the global brand team 10 years ago. And when you think about the time I spent at UTA and the vision that I had early on to now come full circle where I was in a corporate environment, but spending all of my time in the entertainment space was truly a dream come true. But also, by the way, you're still with a financial services company and you thought you'd be an accountant. So it is funny how we we divine these things a little bit, I've noticed. You know, I'm a lot older than you and doing this, I have the privilege of speaking with so many incredible leaders and executives and young and, you know, those further along in their careers. And it's not usually all that. There's always a thread 
that goes through. It just doesn't look exactly, of course, most of the time, um, the way we thought it would look. But all of these dots connected for you. I think that you have to have the vision. Yes. And uh, I would say I would say that still the minority of people that I talk to that have a clear vision of where they want to go in terms of their career. But once you have that vision, it becomes so much easier to make those dots connect, like you said. And so I do tell people all the time that transitions are hard, landing the job is hard, but it's certainly possible when you do the work and you have the vision and figure out a plan to see it through. I really hope that you've enjoyed this conversation so far. As you know, we have decided to forego any sponsorship for our first few podcasts so that we could use the opportunity during this unique time to bring attention to some social issues and important organizations that are making a difference in areas that matter deeply to us. Today, we'd like to bring your attention to Win, one of the largest providers of shelter and supportive housing serving the three boroughs of New York City. I've supported and worked with Win for many years and began working with them more than a decade ago when they operated as women in need. As the largest provider of shelter and supportive housing for New York City's homeless families, especially women and children, Wynn's mission is to transform the lives of the women and children they serve by providing safe housing, critical services, and groundbreaking programs designed to help their clients eventually succeed on their own. For many years, The Blue Project, the program I founded through my company, Karen Harvey Consulting, provided guidance and worked with some of their most motivated and promising supportive housing clients as they looked toward getting back on their feet and getting back to work. Today, at KHC and Fashion Tech Forum, we believe that while this very challenging economic time will impact all of us, that we cannot forget those who will fall through the cracks in larger numbers than ever before. In fact, 4,600 people are housed by wind shelters each night, nine out of 10 homeless families in wind shelters are led by women, and 42% of the kids living in wind shelters are under the age of six. While these numbers are staggering, we deeply trust and appreciate the caseworkers and professionals at Wynn who are taking care of these often inspiring women and their families. You can learn more about this wonderful organization and how you can volunteer or give a donation at winnyc.org. Thank you. Do you spend any time? Do you have time to mentor sort of young people coming up through school or things like that? I wouldn't have made it to where I was if people didn't take time for me in their career. And even as recently as seven or eight years ago, I remember the president of our company who unfortunately passed um, shortly thereafter, but he reached out to me and he would say hi to me in the elevator. He would ask how my family was doing. He knew people's names. He was following me on Instagram and would like and comment on my photos And whenever I wanted to schedule time, he would take the time and meet with me and and give me thoughts on what I was working Mm. on or how I should think about my career. 
I often think about that because if the president of a company can take time for somebody very junior in an organization of 50,000 people, then of course I can make time where, where I am. I spend a lot of time with mentees and I find that they fall really in two categories. The first is a group that, like I was referencing earlier, I feel like people just don't know what they want to do with their careers. And I always start asking where somebody wants to be in the next three or five years. And I'm always so surprised how few people have an answer to that question. So with Mm -hmm. that group, I really spend most of the time asking them the questions and giving them the tough feedback to help them to start to build that vision that I talked about, which I think is so important. Because if you don't have the structure to build the career that you want, then you're just going to kind of go where the wind takes you and go where opportunities are opening up. And I really do attribute happiness to a deliberate career that you design and plan. And what's been really interesting, I've had two conversations with mentees in the last few weeks who are on the verge of new jobs. And these are mentees I would put in that first group. And both of the conversations were with women of color who were asking how to ask for what compensation they thought they deserved. It's always a conversation. Well, when I asked what they were looking for, I thought that in both cases, they were very reasonable, almost too reasonable. And it's funny, by the end of both of those conversations, they were in a very different place. They needed to hear that they deserved to make what they feel that they're worth and what they know that they're worth from a market value perspective. Well, they have a double whammy. They're women and they're women of color. Women are just statistically and in my experience awful at asking for more, whatever more is, more than they think they're worth, more than they think something pays. Even if they think what their worth is more, it's the ask that is just um, very tough. So I'm happy to offer perspective because I think there's not a lot of transparency as well as you know around what people are worth and what they should be asking for. And I think that perspective gives the confidence and gives the validation. And in both cases, I think they're both going to net out well. But that second category of mentee for me is the younger millennial, the older Gen Zer who's on the total opposite end of the spectrum. They think that they're ready to run companies and don't understand why they might have to be in a job (laughs) for two years when they already should be taking their boss's job. And so in those conversations, it's about helping them understand the value that you get from different experiences as you move up in your career and helping them understand that they're not exactly, you know, where they think that they should be. I love that. I think that's a great starting point. It's one of the things that makes me so excited about the future, which is the next generation does look and feel very different than when I was going into the workforce. In fact, I was talking to this woman who I just met, who is a black woman who just graduated from college this summer. Not a good time to graduate from college. (laughs) Terrible, terrible, terrible. So she wanted to have a conversation about how I could potentially help her with her job search. And fortunately, of course, she had a great idea what she wanted to do. She wanted to have an entry-level job at a creative agency. She wanted to be a marketer. And I Mm. said, this is great. And then she said... And I, I, of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very selective and I'm only going to look at places that are going to truly value my expertise and my perspective as a black woman. 
And I was like, mm. uh, what? Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. And if you remember, you know, this summer was the height of the racial conversations about inclusion and diversity and in the wake of civil unrest as the Black Lives Matter movement accelerated. And I, it was a really profound moment for me to hear somebody who was just entering the workforce and have the perspective that this changed everything. And as somebody who's been in the industry or been in corporate America for 20 years, I don't want to dampen that joy and that excitement. I want to be the change and I want her to be the change. But I felt an obligation to help her understand that we are not at the point of arrival. In many ways, we're at the beginning. We're at a point of departure. The fact of the matter is that people who hold leadership positions in business are overwhelmingly in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and they're overwhelmingly white. Yes. And for many people in those positions, this summer was an awakening. They didn't even fully appreciate that there was a problem. 100%. And so while I've appreciated the level of engagement from all parties and all walks of life around this movement and the importance of it not being a moment, but being a movement, I had to make sure that this woman was being selective and making sure she was choosing a company that aligns to her values where she would be excited about the work, but where she also understood that any entry-level employee at a creative agency is going to be doing not super fun work at the beginning. They're going to have very late hours. They're going to be the one who things get dropped on, and they're not always going to feel the most valued regardless of their race, their their ethnicity, their age, or their sexual orientation. And it was just an eye-opening moment. And so I tell that story because having mentees has been a mirror for me. It's been a real beacon of self-reflection because as I move through the world, as I move through my day, it's not until I have those moments where I'm talking to people who are representing the next generation or who haven't had the experiences that I've had that I truly reflect on what I've learned in the 20 years I've been in the industry. And it's not until people ask me questions that I feel very well positioned to answer that I understand, you know, what some of the experiences that I've picked up along the way have meant. We've all been experiencing this movement in different ways. And this kind of next stage of realization about racism, inherent racism, systemic racism. You know, for myself, it's just been this peeling away of really recognizing the DNA of it all. What's it been like for you as this movement has been at first rightfully, of course, exploding, but continuing and being in a company that while I'm sure they're more diverse than when you started, is still dealing with this. And what's it like being in the conversations? And is the pink elephant still in the room or is the pink elephant on the table? It's a tough question to answer because it's so personal. And I've realized particularly this year how conditioned I've been over 20 years to keep race out of work, keep race out of conversations in the workplace. 
And I've also realized I have felt really called to action this year. And I have felt that in many ways, all of the experiences that I've had have led to this moment. And what would I do in this moment? And so when I recall that week that George Floyd's murder played out day after day after day, all day on the TV news, in social media, you couldn't escape it. It was everywhere. And believe it or not, I've never seen it. I've only seen the images or seconds. I know that I could never watch that nine minutes of footage. It'd be too hard. But that week was this flurry of emotions, and it started as very raw. It felt so painful to hear people be surprised that this was happening. Mm -hmm. And... It was, it was very disappointing because I was raised from the earliest age that I can remember to know that that could happen to me. I was raised to not challenge authority because the consequence could be death. And certainly when I got my driver's license, I knew how scared my parents were that I was going to be out in the road and that I could be pulled over by a police officer. And so this is more than 20 years that I have known that this is the reality. And I remember actually being a passenger in a car with friends once and seeing a siren go off and thinking that we were going to be pulled over. And I almost had a panic attack and my friend didn't understand why. And I couldn't understand that my friend didn't understand why because the pure idea of being pulled over by a police officer felt like a life or death, extremely scary incident. And so I had to compartmentalize that that week because it was a normal mm -hmm. week. We were doing Zoom meetings all day, every day, Monday through Friday. Things intensified over the weekend, if I recall correctly, because Monday was the hardest. I remember going into the office on Monday and having to lead a meeting about our Shop Small program. And it was like not a topic of conversation, what was happening in the, the world. And I was leading the meeting. So the reason it wasn't a topic mm -hmm. of conversation is I didn't make it a topic of conversation. Interesting. And uh, a number of people started to IM me saying, how are you doing? And I was struck by that because that's not been what I had experienced before. I'd never experienced particularly a white person checking in on me because mm. of what was going on outside of the office. I knew that I had to be there for my team first. And so I reached out mm. to the black people on my team and I let them know that I was there for them and that I knew that this was a hard time and that they should take the space that they need. But it took mm. me a few days before I convened my team because again, it's an interesting position to be a black leader of a team convening people from all different backgrounds, but who are predominantly white. I felt almost that it wasn't fair of me to have a team meeting about this, about what was going on in America as their leader. Like, how, would, how could I impose that on them? And the more discussions I had with friends, and thank goodness I had a, a wonderful tribe by then of people mm -hmm. who we could talk about it together I realized that all of these years that I've been in the exclusive clubs, all of these years that I've made the white people around me more comfortable by not bringing race up, this was the first time I couldn't do that anymore. 
the reason I'd been making them comfortable is that's how I was that's how I was raised. That's how I was taught. If you want to move up, if you want to be successful, then a part of that is how do you not bring race into to your job and not make it a thing? Mm. And so I spoke with our CMO and I actually convened our entire division of 150 marketers around the world for our first ever uncomfortable conversation about race. And this SVP, who's a colleague of mine, shared a story casually of something that just happened over the weekend and that just popped into his mind to share. And in the story, he finished a round of golf and he popped into Costco to pick up some beer. He bought the beer, pushed his cart to his car, his luxury SUV, puts the beer in the car. And as he's pushing the cart back, this white woman pushes her cart at him because she thinks that he's the person who collects the carts in the parking lot. Uh. And he kind of tells this story and glosses over it to make a bigger point. But this story was very triggering for me because this happens to me all the time. Karen, a week can't go by that I'm not in the Duane Reed wearing a trench coat and a Burberry scarf and somebody won't say to me, oh, do you work here? I can't. I only mentioned the trench coat because I'm not wearing a uniform that suggests that I work there. And so when the story triggered me, I literally asked that we go back to the story. And I said, guys, I need to double click on this story. I need everybody to hear what he just shared, and picture yourself having multiple degrees, having a great job, having a a nice car, having just played a great round of golf on a Saturday, and somebody just pushes their card at you and is basically telling you through her subconscious racism, which is not overt, that you are not Mm -hmm. equal to her that you couldn't possibly have a Mercedes park next to hers, that your job is to take her cart back to the store. What really struck me is that the moderator of the discussion, who was a white colleague and friend, said, will you really handle that with grace? And I said, no, 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 no. He did not handle it with grace. He handled it, he handled it as he was born and raised to handle it. Because if he didn't handle it with grace, imagine what would happen. You don't have to imagine because right. you now know. You just saw it on TV. What would happen if he even so much as pushed the car back or asked her, well, ma'am, why is it that you think that I work in the parking lot? Yes. Then what happens when the security guard comes out and sees this black man in his track suit that he just put on after his round of golf, but is he's not wearing the trappings? What would happen if, if, if the security guard came out and saw him arguing with this woman in the parking lot? So that was a really powerful session, and I've really enjoyed that the uncomfortable conversations have continued. It's almost like the floodgates have opened and and people are a lot more receptive to these conversations. And for me, what was powerful was that the personal stories helped dimensionalize the systematic issues and how deep they run when you even think about the story that I told from the seventh grade all the way to what I experienced Mm. when I go to the Duane Reed around the corner and how it all comes together and why that week was so raw is that I saw myself in George Floyd, which I knew that my colleagues didn't see me in him yes. until we shared those stories. 
And so I'm realizing this is a pretty long-winded answer to your original question, but the moment for me created an opportunity to make a difference internally at American Express by creating these forums, but also externally. You know that I lead our shop small programs. And so I knew that when the unrest started and the narrative across the country grew really focused on Black Lives Matter, that it also created a moment that we needed to lean in and really demonstrate our backing of the Black community. And I thought that a really authentic way to do that would be through our legacy of supporting small businesses. This year, we invested $200 million in small business recovery for businesses around the world. And we thought that that was a moment to also, given black business owners were disproportionately affected by COVID-19, how could we lean in? And so we've developed a series of programs specifically designed to support black business owners. The first was a grant program, and we launched it as a coalition to back black businesses, which American Express pledged $10 million to over the next four years. We made it a coalition so that it would be bigger than just American Express. And we've already had other partners come on and, and, and contribute millions to the cause as well. We also recently, and I'm really excited about this, and I hope you'll check it out. We launched a, a video podcast called Built to Last. And it tells the stories of legacy black business owners and how they impacted the community and how they also inspired today's next generation of black business owners. The stories that we have unearthed are shocking to me that people don't know. The story of Dookie Chase, whose restaurant still exists in New Orleans, and how he created a safe space for people to organize and people to gather, but also he created a role model in the community. And so we told that story in relation to Slutty Vegan, and the very inspiring business that Pinky Cole has created. And Pinky it was a guest on our very first show and talked about the work that she does in the community and is that same sort of role model and provides that same sort of safe space, particularly as things heated up this summer. And so I really encourage anybody to check that out wherever you listen to podcasts or on our YouTube page for American Express. And we're continuing that support. We're continuing to make it easy for our consumers to support Black-owned businesses, and we have a lot. I mean, it must be so much harder. I don't know what the statistics are, the delta between the a white founder of any kind of business and Black founders' ability to get funding must be pretty dramatic. I, I don't know what the statistics are. There are a lot are. of statistics this year that came out about the disproportionate access to capital that Black entrepreneurs face. But with the grant program is designed to provide that equal playing field and to put more capital in the hand of businesses who need it. Mm. And it's been really exciting to see the reaction and to see both the reaction internally where it was a very easy case to make and where there's such pride across the company that we're investing in the black community. And even since then, our CEO has pledged a billion dollars in support for um, underrepresented communities. And so it makes me very proud to work at American Express and really energized to keep pushing. And represent underrepresented talent, which is just a huge focus of what we're doing and what you know so many of our, our clients are asking us to do, and we're grateful for the opportunity. 
But it also makes me think this is an incredibly transformative moment for you, no matter what, because somehow this ability to be empowered by your history and by your accomplishments all at once and to be fully present in that is, I wish we were in person, and but I can really feel that uh, impact for you. And I really appreciate you for that. And I am sure that no matter what, just my experience in this conversation, you make it easier, I think, for people who are not of color to have this conversation, not because you're trying to make it easy, but because you also have great empathy. And I think you're able to understand the process of what people have to go through, regardless of where they sit in the process. Because I do think it is a very, very big journey that, you know, people who are not people of color have to go through. And I said it before, it's wherever you are in the spectrum, there's more. It's true. When the topic of privilege was really prominent this summer, it was really the first time that I was confronted with my own privileges, you know, because as a black man, as a gay man, I often think about the fact that I don't have white privilege or I don't have the privilege that straight people have. But this summer I realized, well, I do have cisgender privilege. I do have male privilege. And I think it's really mm-hmm. important that we all, whether you represent an underrepresented minority group or not, mm-hmm. take account in that because right now the conversation is really focused on race and specifically around the black community. But there are systematic issues that we have to address across all disadvantaged or underrepresented communities. And I can be black and gay and contribute to the problem for other groups, or I can contribute to the solution. And the only way I can contribute to the solution is if I go in with that awareness, the same way that I ask you to have awareness of the privileges that you clearly do have. Um, and I think more people have this year than than last. Yes, I fully agree with that and recognize that and work on that. And it's all very, very, very important. And like I said, for me, there's always more. So it's it's really going deeper and, and, and more. But you are a leader in this company and you are, you are also a leader as an individual. You have that thing. And I tend to say like in, in the work we do, recognizing leadership, it's something that is felt in a room. It's a kind of presence that is not about what something looks like or someone looks like or any of those things. It is something that is palpable, that can be sensed and felt. And I've always felt that about you. So one, how do you think about yourself as a leader? And I'm actually a little funny about the words leadership style, because I think people show up as they are, as leaders. And I don't think of leadership as being so much of a style as I think of it as being present, listening more sometimes than talking. You know, I've placed a lot of leaders in my life and there are a number of red threads through those incredible 
people, but how do you think about it? It's funny because I always talk about adaptability and that my leadership style very much depends on who I'm talking to and what the moment requires. So I agree with you in terms of how you describe style because I have found that relationships are one-to-one and, you know, I have four direct reports who are leading very different work and they're in different points in their career. And I couldn't possibly lead them the same way. I couldn't go into each conversation with one monolithic style as Walter Fry. And so I bring that sense of empathy that we talked about into the conversation And I base each interaction on what it calls for in terms of where people on my team are in their journey, where they can be more autonomous, where they need me to lean in more. But I take the role of leader very seriously, and I love it. And I know that there are some people who don't love the people leadership element of their job, and I never understand that because it's in many ways the most dynamic part of the job. It's such an honor, and I take such pride and joy in evolving relationships from point A to point B, in seeing great work for my team and what I know it takes for each of them to bring that to life. And I feel like I'm very much on a journey. You know, I see myself continuing to grow and continuing to lead bigger teams. And I've also been super cognizant of how I adapt to having bigger teams, right? How I have to communicate differently to ensure that the vision Mm -hmm. is communicated all the way down through the team to ensure that everyone's motivated, even though I'm not seeing them and interacting with all of them on a day-to-day basis. And it's definitely the part of my job that I love the most. Congratulations for all of that. And gosh, this has been really wonderful. And I appreciate you bringing yourself wholeheartedly to this conversation. I've wanted to have it with you for since I launched the podcast, and thank you for that. Is there anything else you'd like to share or say before we close? Well, I just want to say thank you because I didn't know where we were going to go either, and I am always happy to share my story if there's somebody that can help And my story is very much a product of all the experiences and people who've shaped my journey. And so I'm very grateful to all the people who have taught or influenced me in one way or another. And I'm always happy to carry the mantle in ways that I can carry it forward. So thank you for having me. And of course, I'm always happy to come back to talk about some of the areas that we didn't get to today. And I am so incredibly grateful to you as well and for going there with me. Thank you so much, truly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our program. You can subscribe to Fashion Tech Forum in the studio wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Fashion Tech Forum in the Studio is a production of FTF and Charts and Leisure, co-produced by my amazing co-founder of FTF and Index, Maya Wojcik, and Megal Janardin of Charts and Leisure. The program is executive produced by Jason Oberholzer and me, and our theme music was written and performed by the wonderful Michael Simonelli. Thank you again for joining Fashion Tech Forum in the Studio, and I look forward to seeing you soon. <laughs>